You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the now happening transition, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. As always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Podcast today is part explainer, part history on the presidential authority to grant pardons for national security offenses and the history of clemency and pardons generally to give us some context. Because we are, after all, coming to the end of one administration. We're in pardon season. Joining us today is Helen Bulwark the woman who was deputy chief of section of the Department of Justice known as the Pardon Attorney Office for long enough that she became the department's leading expert, a description she is too humble to accept. Former pardon attorneys have lauded her knowledge of the history of pardons and the law, so we're excited to welcome Helen Bulwark. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm glad to be here, and it's a particularly appropriate day, I guess, because President Trump just pardoned the uh, Thanksgiving turkey again. That <laughs> happened, I think, within the last half hour. I don't know. I don't know whether it was corn or cob that got pardoned, but the pardon, the turkey pardon, was today. I have to say, having spent 19 years of my 35 years in the Justice Department, 19 years in the Pardon Attorney's Office, the turkey pardon is not my favorite event because, to me, it kind of makes a joke out of clemency. And those of us who work in the clemency arena really do think that it's a much more important power than the turkey pardon leads people to believe. But it's a, it's an auspicious day, I guess. <laughs> well, that's a great lead into <laughs> what we'd love to talk to you about, Helen, which is the law. Just foundationally, what grants the president the authority to grant pardons and what limitations are placed on that authority? Well, the pardon power is granted to the president by the Constitution in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, which states that the president, quote, shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. 20 words, that's it. That is the entire grant of of the pardon power to the president with no other qualifiers and no other explanations around it. So it's, it's an extremely broad power. It is the one power that the president has absolute plenary authority to exercise and he can exercise it in any fashion he chooses. So what does that mean? Well, the language says it applies to offenses against the United States. That means federal offenses, not state offenses. If a person is convicted in the state of New York or the state of Maryland or the state of California for something and wants to come to the the president for a pardon, we have to say, sorry, go to your governor. Uh, The president cannot help you. Uh, It also means that the president's power uh, does not extend to civil infractions or penalties. So if you're convicted of federal tax evasion, the president can pardon you. If the IRS says, uh, we've audited you and you owe us $100,000 and we're going to put on top of that penalties and interest in a civil setting, you come to the pardon attorney, we say, sorry, the president can't help you. So civil, civil penalties are excluded criminal, federal criminal penalties are uh, pardonable. The other thing that obviously the president can't do under the language of the constitution is that he cannot pardon an impeachment, someone who is being impeached. That's the only limitation that the founding fathers put on the pardon power. 
At the time that the pardon uh, clause was drafted and debated uh, during the, the Constitutional Convention and and the uh, the ratification uh, efforts in the in the new states, there was a big debate: should treason be pardonable? Um, should we exclude that as an offense that the president cannot touch? Should the Senate have to consent to a pardon, particularly in cases of treason? Maybe the Senate, you should have to get the advice and consent of the Senate uh, as he does with appointments. Uh, what remedy would exist if a president abuses the power? How do we, how do we handle a president who pardons co-conspirators for a crime in which he participated? And there is actually some uh, historical record on what the uh, the founding fathers thought on this. It's not nearly as as robust as uh, a number of the other provisions in in the Constitution, but they did debate it uh, to some degree back and forth, and particularly Alexander Hamilton. The upshot of all of this debate was that they decided that treason should be a pardonable offense, and and impeachment's not. The, excluding impeachment was was the right uh, right way to handle what kind of an exception should exist. Treason, they actually felt it would probably be, a, at least Alexander Hamilton, it would be a good idea to be able to, to pardon treasons because a well-considered pardon in that kind of circumstance might forestall or end a civil war. And there were, after all, uh, in, in our history, instances in which presidents granted uh, pardons of treason for that very reason. Uh, the second question they decided was, should the president be able to act alone without the consent of the Senate? They said, yes, the president acts alone. Senate cannot uh, restrain or circumscribe his pardon power. And what remedy do they believe that, did they believe that the president should be available for a president who, who is, uh, abuses the pardon power or uh, conspires with others to, to break the federal law? The remedy, they said, was, the House of Representatives can always impeach him and the Senate can try him and he can be removed from office. That was the remedy that they proposed that would be adequate. So um, that's what pardon, uh, pardon power came to be uh, in the Constitution. It encompasses a number of different kinds of, of pardon, of uh, clemency. The broad, uh, broad term is clemency, but it, that includes pardons or full pardons. Generally, pardons uh, in, in today's context are pardons after completion of sentence. Uh, but that's, I'll get to this in, in a little bit later, but it doesn't have to be after completion of sentence. So a president can pardon. He can commute a sentence, which means he can shorten a sentence that's being served. He can grant a reprieve of a sentence. In other words, delay its execution. Presidents have done that uh, often in death sentence cases. And the president can remit unpaid financial punishments that are part of a sentence. So if a person is sentenced not only to prison, but also to pay a $20,000 fine, uh, that can be remitted by the president, either in the context of a commutation or by a pardon. Uh, and the Department of Justice actually has opined, the Office of Legal Counsel has opined that the president's pardon power also can extend to remissions. So remissions of restitution could be, uh, could be uh, granted by the president. Um, there's another category that, that uh, writers on the topic talk about generally. They talk about amnesty. Amnesty is just pardons of a group. So it's generally proclamations that extend to a, a group of people rather than an individual person. But generally, the two things that we think about uh, are pardon, commutation of sentence, reprieve and remission of finer restitution. 
So what is the effect of a pardon? Uh, there are a lot of a uh, lot of misconceptions about about that. A pardon in modern day parlance is an ex expression of the president's forgiveness for committing a crime, uh, and it it removes the civil disabilities that flow from that conviction. One of the many reasons, or one of the most popular reasons, people apply for federal pardons uh, over the time that I was in the pardon attorney's office and continuing on to this day, I'm sure is to remove their federal firearms disabilities, to get their firearms rights back. But also, uh, it restores your right to vote. It restores uh, your right to hold office if these disabilities flow from the fact of your federal conviction. Um, and a lot of people also apply to the president for pardon if they want to uh, seek licensure in a profession, uh, either for the first time or if they're seeking to be reinstated and uh, they've been, been banned uh, from the profession because of their conviction, they come to the pardon attorney and, and ask the president uh, to pardon them so that they can go back to the licensing authority and say, look, I'm rehabilitated. The president has granted me a pardon to show that I'm rehabilitated. He believes me. Uh, you should take that into account when you're considering my reapplication. Now, the pardon doesn't require the, the licensing board to do that. Um, some early language in, in uh, Supreme Court uh, talked about the pardon blotting out guilt um, and making it as if it had never happened. That's not true. And that's the, the Supreme Court almost immediately backed away from that as, as too broad a statement. But um, the, like I said, the person who is seeking reinstatement can say, look, take this pardon into, into account shows that the president believes that I am, I am a good risk, that I am rehabilitated, but it doesn't, he can't take it to the pardon or to the licensing board and say, okay, I got a pardon, you have to let me back in. That uh, doesn't work that way. Um, the other misconception uh, that people have is that the pardon expunges the record of conviction. A commutation obviously wouldn't because that just shortens your sentence. But a lot of people think that a pardon expunges your conviction and a lot of, um, Writers, when they write about, oh, the president pardoned somebody, you know, he's erased the conviction. It's like it never happened. That's not true either. And the Supreme Court case law makes that clear. What, what happens when a person is pardoned is that uh, the pardon attorney's office, when they're, they handle the paperwork for the pardon, they notify the FBI that the person has been pardoned and their criminal history record is updated to show both the conviction and the pardon. But it's not as though the, the FBI takes the pardon and then just uh, removes the conviction from his record. So it is not an automatic rewriting of history. It's a, it's a statement that you've been rehabilitated. And for that reason, um, the pardon attorney's office makes it clear to people that when you, you come seeking a pardon, you shouldn't be looking for vindication because normally a pardon is not a statement of vindication. Every so often, uh, an executive, a governor, or very occasionally a, a president will will issue a pardon and say, you know, I believe this person is is innocent. And I honestly can't think of, of, of a president that's done that. Although at one point I tried to look that up and I, I saw something in a, in a record that said it had been like in the middle eighties that that had happened, but I don't know with who. But generally speaking, a pardon is an expression of forgiveness. It's not a statement of innocence and it's not a vindication. So um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what a pardon does and doesn't do. 
Well, that is a uh, that is a wonderful start. Given the like, kind of the contours of what the limitations are and and how it's essentially plenary, mm-hmm. um, has there ever been a grant of a part pardon that's been subject of a controversy uh, that's been litigated in federal court? Oh yeah, there's there's actually a, a pretty robust uh, body of case law about the clemency power and pardons, and particularly in the Supreme Court, beginning in the 19th century, there's a fair number of cases that talk about um, what, what, uh, what the pardon power is and isn't. And first of all, uh, it's very clear from Supreme Court case law that Congress cannot limit the president's authority to pardon. Um, Supreme Court said that as early as 1866 in Ex Parte Garland, which was also the case that talked about it blotting out guilt. But uh, even though they've retreated from that, the fact that Congress cannot circumscribe the power is is very, very clear. Uh, the court reaffirmed that in um, a number of other cases, uh, including Schick versus Reed, where they held um, that that was a case involving a death, a military death sentence. And um, the question was, was whether or not the fact that, of, you know, Furman versus Georgia had been decided meant that, you know, um, the uh, the death penalty couldn't go forward. The court talked a lot about um, the power of the court and the, the power of the uh, military or the uh, legislature to limit the president's pardon power. And the court held again that the president's pardon count power cannot be modified, abridged or diminished by any statute. And other cases uh, where the court has has considered clemency, they've talked repeatedly about how that is an area that the court should be, you know, very reluctant to even look at because it, it is, it's outside of, of their authority. The, the pardon power is solely the president's. It's not one that's subject to, ju- the, the merits are not subject to judicial review. Uh, another thing that has been litigated is, is whether or not um, the pardon can be, what at what point the pardon can be exercised. And the Supreme Court has made it clear again, as far back as, as ex parte Garland, that the president can exercise his power uh, anytime after the federal offense has been committed. You don't have to have been indicted. You don't have to have gone to trial. You don't have to have been sentenced. The president can pardon you as, as soon as you've committed the crime. What the president can't do though, is pardon prospectively. In other words, uh, he can't, absolve you before you've committed the crime. That's the one thing that that the, the power does not extend to. It has to be um, a completed act. So if you've been if you've committed a crime and the president is aware of it and wants to wants to forgive you for it, doesn't matter if, if uh, you've been found out and indicted and, and tried, the pardon would be just as, as valid uh, at that point. Best example of that obviously is the Nixon pardon. Um, when Nixon left office, uh, the country was in, in quite a turmoil over Watergate and his role in Watergate and all of the, uh, the things that had happened. And President Ford made the decision to pardon Nixon for any, any federal offense he might have committed while in office. Very broad language, but kind of necessary because I don't think anybody knew at that point what the full catalog was. And Ford's purpose in that, of course, was to try and put an end to Watergate, put it behind the country and let us move forward. 
there is often a political calculus in, in the exercise of clemency. Ford made the decision that that was the thing to do. Uh, many people think that he paid a heavy price for that in the subsequent election in 1976, where he was defeated, because it was an extremely controversial grant of pardon. Um, the president's pardon power also includes, uh, they've said, the, part, the power to commute sentences uh, and the power to set conditions on commutations or pardons. So a president can grant either a full and unconditional pardon, or he can uh, include a condition that has to be uh, has to be met by the the petitioner before the pardon becomes effective. When President Ford established his clemency board um, in the mid 70s uh, for military deserters and um, people who had been some people who had been convicted of uh, violating the Military Selective Service Act. He, he set up a system whereby they were granted conditional pardons and uh, initially, and they then had to complete terms of alternative service. And once they had completed the alternative service, that would be certified by either the military branch head, if you were a military person, or by the Selective Service Act head, if it was a, a military uh, Selective Service Act draft evader, and then the pardon would become effective. And at that point, they were issued a full and complete pardon. So initially, the pardon was made conditional. It became final once they had satisfied the condition. One of the most famous examples of a conditional clemency grant that was litigated uh, and sort of ended, ended in the middle um, was Jimmy Carter or Jimmy Hoffa's commutation uh, for his convictions of fraud in, uh, in dealing with uh, the Teamsters Pension Fund. And he was convicted, actually he was convicted in two different cases, one for jury tampering and one for, for various kinds of fraud related to the Teamsters Pension Fund. Um, and he was sentenced to a 13 year sentence. He applied for, um, for a commutation. <laughs> when the commutation application was reported up to the White House, John Dean, who was the counsel to the president at the time, suggested to the president that he include a, a condition that uh, the, the commutation be granted on the condition that, that Hoffa uh, not engage in any management or involvement with uh, any union until March of 1980 when his sentence, his prison sentence would have naturally expired. And that was the way the commutation was, was drafted and, and issued and granted and accepted by Hoffa. And then later on, he decided he didn't like that, co that condition too much. So he, he went to court to, to fight it and to claim that the condition violated his rights of, uh, of free speech and free association. And in a very famous opinion in the district court, uh, federal district court in the District of Columbia, uh, Hoffa versus Saxby, uh, the court went through a lengthy uh, analysis of clemency and uh, the president's ability to impose conditions on clemency and ruled that, that that condition was appropriate. It was not a violation of his constitutional rights and the president was fully within his power to, uh, to uh, add it to the commutation. Hoffa then apparently was planning on, and I don't know how far he got with it, planning to appeal that decision. And then of course, as we know, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. So the case uh, was was never uh, appealed up to the uh, for decision to the D.C. Circuit, and Hoffa versus Saxby still stands as a 
a seminal case on uh, the president's ability to impose conditions um, on a grant of clemency. Uh, president's power to uh, grant clemency or pardon also extends to criminal contempts of court, but not civil contempts of court. Uh, that, that rule was announced in the Supreme Court's case of ex parte Grossman in 1925. It's not a case that people think often about and probably hadn't thought about it for years until Joe Arpaio's situation came up uh, earlier in the Trump administration and President Trump granted him a full pardon before he had been convicted on the criminal contempt uh, conviction. And that was a perfectly legitimate use of his power. People can disagree with it. There are a lot of reasons why they would, but it's it's perfectly legitimate under ex parte Grossman. Uh, but the president's pardon power obviously does not extend to civil contempt because civil contempt is not a crime. It is a coercive effort to try and, and force somebody to do something to enforce the rights of a, of a third party. Another another uh, case that that people talk about and disagree about is the case of Burdick versus the United States, which talks about how pardon um, carries with it an imputation of guilt and that acceptance of a pardon then is a confession of guilt. It does say that and the Supreme Court's decision on that still stands, but there's a lot of debate about that nowadays, particularly if people are seeking pardon and then going out and saying, really, this shows that I was right all the time. It's, I, it's a vindication of my point. Um, and so a, a lot of people debate about whether you have to actually um, accept responsibility or uh, confess guilt in order to, for a pardon to be effective. I will say that when, when a person applies for pardon, one of the things that the pardon attorney's office looks for, and it says so right on, on their website, um, which is incredibly fulsome and helpful to people, it has just a wealth of information about clemency and how to apply for clemency and what clemency means. We look at acceptance of responsibility. I mean, if you're coming to the president for forgiveness uh, and to demonstrate rehabilitation, really acceptance of responsibility is the baseline for doing that. Um, and of course that, that flows from, from Burdick's uh, language. It's, it's basically a, an acceptance uh, confession of, of your guilt for the offense. Last, last case I would mention, this is not a Supreme Court case, but it's a, these days it's not as, as current as it was. Uh, it's a 1990 case out of the Third Circuit, but it expressly talks about how a pardon does not expunge a conviction. So again, people that, that come seeking a pardon thinking this is going to blot it all out and re rewrite my criminal history, it doesn't do that. And, and this case is United States versus Noonan. So there's a very robust uh, body of case law out there that um, people can can look at if they're interested. You could start and go for days just reading these cases because a lot of them are 19th century cases and they kind of go on in flowery terms. But the basic uh, the basic points still stand today. Well, I have to say I do like that sort of um, baroque uh, and detailed writing of some of those old opinions. I just wish that modernly we had the time uh, to peruse them. But I mean, my head is just racing listening to you that it sounds like you know, the president, if he desired to do so, could well within his constitutional authority at pretty much any time pardon anybody working for him now. And I have not um, heard anything from what you've said that says that there's any constitutional limitation on him obviously pardoning himself, which has been 
uh, a lot of the discourse, but I'll let you uh, answer that in maybe in the context of, of your answer to the next question. But um, it's hard to imagine, although um, I know you're not in the office of the pardon attorney right now, but it's hard to imagine that all of this that we've been reading about in the news does actually clear the pardon attorney office at the Department of Justice, but it may, and maybe we just don't understand that. So if you could describe and educate our listeners on the normal process for seeking pardons, uh, the role the Department of Justice plays in that, and why um, the Justice Department would even be involved in this when it's such an expansive grant of authority under Article 2. Sure. Um, let me let, let me start with a, a an important point that everybody needs to understand. The pardon attorney's office operates under regulations that are promulgated in the Code of Federal Regulations. It's 28 uh, CFR sections 1.1 to 1.11, 1.1 .1 to 1.11. And they uh, set forth the, the baseline uh, requirements of how we process cases. The last section of that of uh, 1.111 makes it clear that those regulations are advisory only and that they are for the guidance of the, of the Department of Justice, the Office of the Pardon Attorney, but they do not constrain the president in any way, shape, or form. The president can exercise his authority without even talking to the Justice Department, without even letting the Justice Department know that he's going to do something until he, he wants the piece of paper to make it work. Um, because the, there, you know, the Constitution does not require him to have a pardon attorney's office. The pardon attorney's office, or the role of the Justice Department in in clemency, goes back to the mid 19th century, and developed over time. There was a a, a clerk of pardons, and when the Justice Department um, was was established, uh, there there the clerk of pardons was in that office and the, and the attorney general actually was in charge of the process. The, the State Department had, had actually been involved in it as well before that. Um, the purpose of the pardon attorney's office is to give the president a good, full, complete, factual analysis of the case so that he is acting not in the dark, so that he has a full understanding of what the offense was and who the person is. That said, he doesn't have to, to uh, ask for that. He can make his decision based on a Hollywood you know, person calling him up and saying, I think this would be a great idea if you would pardon X or if you would commute the sentence of Y. And President Trump is not the only person who's done that. I mean, there have been situations going back to other presidents as well. It's a personal power of the president the pardon attorney's office exists to make him to make it easier for the president and to to be a, a, a funnel really for people who want to seek the president's uh, clemency, so that they can come to us and we can process their paperwork, look into the case, and then report to the president what we found. And if you, if a person wants to apply for clemency in a federal case. Uh, they go to the, the uh, Office of the Pardon Attorney's website, which is at usdoj.gov uh, pardon, and there they will find the application forms for seeking a pardon, 
seeking a commutation of sentence. Uh, they're fully explained there. All of the, the rules for applying are explained. And, you know, we have a, they have an entire section on frequently asked questions. All of the, the um, regulations are there. All of the policies of the department are there. And a person is not required to have a lawyer. It's meant to be user friendly so that people can, can apply on their own. But there are a couple of eligibility requirements, but they, they govern what the pardon attorney's office will process. They do not constrain the president. The first eligibility requirement is that if a person is seeking a pardon for a federal case or for a federal conviction, they have to have satisfied a five-year waiting period from the time of their release from any kind of confinement, or if there was no confinement, including home confinement, they just got a straight probation or, or a fine then it's five years from the date of sentencing. But there's this five-year waiting period, and the purpose for that has always been to give the person an opportunity to demonstrate a pattern of rehabilitation. It's much better to be able to show, here's what I've been doing for the last five years. This is why I'm rehabilitated, why I'm a good risk, why the president should, in his mercy, reach out and, and grant me clemency. Uh, if a person wants to apply for a commutation of sentence, on, which is obviously on a sentence they are actively serving, they cannot be challenging that sentence in court. So if they've got a, a pending appeal, if they've got a pending collateral attack, uh, the pardon attorney's office will say, you know, come back to us when these uh, court proceedings have, have completed, have been completed, if you still want to seek clemency. Really, I mean, it doesn't do anybody any good to have two tracks going on, one in the court and one with the president. So those are the eligibility requirements. Um, they fill out the paperwork, they fill out the application forms, and they send them to the pardon attorney. A, a pardon application is required to be supported by affidavits from three, three uh, witnesses who aren't members of the person's family, who know the person well and are willing to swear before a notary that they believe that they're good candidates for clemency. The paperwork really requires that the person account for everything he's done since the time of the conviction. And it's pretty long and pretty detailed, but you know, it, it's meant to give a full picture of who the person is. Once the pardon attorney's office receives the application, if the person meets the eligibility requirements, then they go and get the basic uh, court paperwork that, that is needed to assess the case, the pre-sentence report, the judgment of conviction, uh, they also look at court opinions, um, you know, if, if, if it's a case that got some newspaper uh, press, they'll look at those two to get a fuller picture of the, of the conviction. After looking over all of that, if it's a case that looks like it, it might have some merit, they will then ask the, the FBI to do an FBI background investigation of the person. And that, of course, takes a fair amount of time. It's, it's not unlike what, what the FBI does uh, in, in uh, doing a background investigation of someone who is applying for a federal position, federal job. But basically, they go and talk to the applicant. Uh, they talk to his neighbors and his uh, employers and goes back through his criminal history, basically to see, you know, what kind of a person is he and what is his criminal history. Um, they'll report that to the pardon attorney. Then the pardon attorney, if that looks good, will go to the U.S. attorney and the sentencing judge and ask for their input. And once all of that information has been uh, assembled, then the, the uh, Office of the Pardon Attorney, the staff attorney and the pardon attorney in consultation will make a recommendation 
draft a recommendation that goes to the president, but it goes through the deputy attorney general. So the letter of advice is what it's called, and it goes up to the deputy attorney general. The deputy attorney general reviews it, decides if he's comfortable with the recommendation. If not, he or she can tell the pardon attorney's office, I don't agree with this for whatever reason, you need to change it. And then it goes to the White House. And at the White House, it goes to the White House counsel's office, and they then review it and, and you know make their recommendation to the president of, of, of what they think should happen. That's exactly what happened with, with Jimmy Hoffa when, when uh, John Dean got, got the pardon attorney's recommendation. He said, well, I think we ought to add this condition. And so the condition got added. Hadn't come from the Justice Department. It, it came from the White House counsel. So you know, there's discussion within the White House, too. And then the president makes his decision. And it doesn't matter what anybody else has recommended. In the end, the president makes his own call. And if he, if he wants to pardon the person, he will pardon the person. Um, you know, people get pardoned that other people didn't agree was a good idea. And some people get denied that other people think, gee, this person should be pardoned. But at the end of the day, it's the president's decision. Uh, and it, roughly the same process happens with a commutation. The person applies for, uh, for uh, commutation of sentence. The pardon attorney gets the uh, pre-sentence report and judgment of conviction. No need for an FBI background investigation, because after all, we know where the person has been since they've been convicted. And we look at the case and, and make a recommendation up through the deputy attorney general to the president. In, in terms of, of uh, standards that are applied, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, you know, acceptance of responsibility and, and remorse are important in the in the pardon in the pardon context, um, and candor is always important, uh, whether it's commutation or pardon. I mean, you, the, the applicant really needs to be honest about what the facts are. In a pardon case, the pardon attorney's office also looks at the seriousness and recency of the the crime, uh, the need for relief. You know, somebody may be applying because they really want to get back into nursing or they want to get back into being a lawyer or they want to get back into being uh, a, a CPA, whatever it is. So if they have a need, that's something that obviously uh, is important. Um, and then the official recommendations by the uh, sentencing judge and the uh, U.S. attorney. In terms of commutations, typically, in, historically, the, uh, the reasons why those have been granted uh, over decades and decades um, have uh, involved not only the, the seriousness of the, of the offense and the person's overall criminal history and the length of time they've already served, but we also look at, at things like, is the sentence unduly severe or is, it, is, it, is there a disparity between this person's sentence for this crime and what other, a lot of other people have gotten? So disparity and undue severity of sentence have always been an important uh, issue in commutations. President um, Obama, of course, that was a real driver for the uh, the Obama clemency initiative, looking at mandatory minimum sentences um, at the end of his administration. Critical illness or old age of the applicant, uh, also uh, reasons why why commutations have been granted in the past, and unrewarded cooperation perhaps by the applicant um, if if a if person has has cooperated with the government. Uh, in other investigations or other cases, but for one reason or another, a Rule 35 motion for reduction of sentence uh, is not is not something that can be done at, at that time. Um, so those are those are traditional reasons or standards that uh, the part the office of the pardon attorney looks at. But again, at the end of the day, it's the president's decision. The the Justice Department recommends. The president decides, and he is not constrained by 
anything anybody tells him. He can make the decision on his own. He can make it with our input or without our input. And I think, you know, it's not a secret because it's been said by this White House a number of times and, and certainly been written about that the president has acted in, in a number of situations solely on his own. And he can do that. He absolutely can. Um, so, you know, the office exists to serve the president, but if the president doesn't want its services, he's entitled to say, I don't need you. We are going to end this episode here, but join us again next week to hear more about specific cases of national security-related pardons with Helen Bulwark. And we should note that after the recording of this podcast, but before it aired, the news came down that President Trump had offered a full pardon to his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. We're going to link the court cases mentioned on the podcast in the notes. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Find us on Twitter at ABANATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Don't forget the lawyers here are hosting this podcast are always here in their individual capacity. We'll be back next week with more content. So be well, everyone, and be safe. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.